This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad that you can be with us. If you are a first-time listener here at 88.7 or through the Internet, at WAGP.net, where we broadcast around the world 24-7. You can contact us directly here into the studio. The contact address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. And you can submit a question that way, or you can call us directly. Uh, The South Carolina 843 exchange is 525-1859 or toll-free at 877 W-A-G-P, the call letters, W-A-G-P 980. We always give preference to live callers. When you call in live, you can dictate your question if you so choose, or you can go on the air live. Uh, But with that said, Rick, uh, a number of questions have already come in, so let's go ahead and we'll get started. Very good, Pastor. Uh, Carla from Hilton Head prefaces her question by saying, Hello, Pastor Brogy and team. You said a while ago that no question is stupid, and I do appreciate that. Would you please explain the American or English names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's real names um, as they were translated from the Israel names, the uh, Jewish names, and when did that all take place? And thank you in advance. So uh, the gospel according to Matthew, that title is not something you'll find in Scripture. None of the scrolls had titles, and so those were added so that when you're looking for a particular scroll, oh, here's Matthew's scroll. Here's the good news biography on Christ's life. Uh, But his name is found within, obviously, the Gospel of Matthew, and his name is Matthias in Greek. We translate it Matthew, and it means gift of Yahweh or gift of Jehovah, we would often uh, render it. Indeed, he was a gift to the body of Christ, a converted tax collector, and gave us the first gospel whose aim and focus is a Jewish audience. So he is writing a polemic to defend why Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah and what God's relationship is to Israel. So it's a very Jewish gospel. It quotes the Old Testament more than any of the four gospels. Then, of course, there's Mark, and that Greek word is markos, and it literally means a defense or a strong defense or a strong defense. gallant warrior. That's the nuance on it. And so it's actually a Latin name. And so uh, he is John called Mark sometimes to distinguish him from other men in the New Testament. But of course, he writes a Bible, uh, I mean, a gospel that is written specifically towards a Roman audience. And so his audience is largely Roman. And he deals with specifics that someone who's a Gentile in the Roman Empire would be especially interested in. So it's an appropriate name, I suppose, that God in his providence allowed him to have. Luke is the Greek word lukas, and it means literally light-giving. 
And I suppose uh, in some respects that's a Gentile name. Uh, He wasn't a Gentile, but he has a Gentile name, and rightly so. And some of of the different apostles and leaders in the church had a Gentile name and a Jewish name, like Saul of Tarsus. That's his Jewish name. He is given the name Paul, uh, Paul the Apostle. That's really a Gentile name. That's a Greek name, but appropriately so because Paul ministered to largely a Gentile audience. And with that said, Luke, he writes two books in the New Testament. He writes the gospel according to Luke in the book of Acts. And of course, Luke is written, the gospel of Luke, with a Gentile audience in mind. The Acts of the Apostles is really a record of the first 30 years of church history. And together, those two books would mean that Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other writer. We often think of Paul as being the most prolific, and he certainly wrote the most books. But in terms of the amount of material, those two scrolls put together, the Luke-Acts scrolls, longer than all of Paul's letters include. And then John, Iones, uh, means graced by the Lord, or graced by Yahweh, literally, or Jehovah, again, we'd say. And uh, he um, wrote a universal gospel. He writes with the express purpose. He said many other things were recorded in you know, that uh, were done by Jesus that we could have written about, but these have been recorded so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and believing you might have life in his name. So he's writing to anybody and everybody who will listen, and he's sharing, A, the plan of salvation so people can be converted, and B, he is not only sharing the plan of salvation, but to those who have been converted that we might experience that new life that God has for us. So it's not a dumb question. Uh, I don't think it's like a life-changing thing to know the meaning of their name, but it can be helpful. All right, let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we just had a live caller that dictated their question. Okay. They would like you to explain, to, how do you explain, rather, to someone where one's loved one is once they have passed? Okay, so again, our authority is Scripture, and I always tell people that what you believe is based on something. There was a gentleman who came to my Sunday night Meet the Pastor meeting, and usually, typically, half the people who come are not converted. And when he left, I said, did you receive Christ? He said, no. And I said, well, you know, are are you thinking about it? And he said, well, I think I'm fine. I think I'm okay. I said, well, um, based on the answer that you gave to the questions I asked you, the Bible would say you're not okay. And I reminded him, I said, look, everything you believe, everything I believe is based on something. You either made it up or read it in a book or someone told you, but believing it doesn't necessarily make it true. You can believe I told him two plus two equals five, and you can believe it sincerely, but you'd be sincerely wrong. And so we've established in the Western mind, if someone believes something sincerely, it's true. And now we even use, well, that's your truth, and this is my truth, as if truth is relative and you can make it up. Look, you can't make it up. God has spoken. Man doesn't make up truth. He discovers truth. And the ultimate truth that really matters in this life is found in Holy Scripture. And so Holy Scripture is our authority. And this is important because Paul says when he speaks about death and what happens at death, he says, I'll not have you to be ignorant, brethren, about those who are asleep, that is, those who have died. 
because there's a lot of ignorance as to what happens when someone dies. Some people think, well, you just cease to exist. And so the Jehovah's Witness teach that if you die not as a Jehovah's Witness, you're just annihilated. That's the end. You cease to exist. Well, that contradicts all logic, and certainly it contradicts what the Bible teaches. And they use a couple verses out of context to try to sustain that. The Bible is very clear that a person continues on after they die, even either in heaven or in hell. Uh, Ecclesiastes, Solomon recorded that God wrote eternity into our hearts. And that's why wherever you go in the world, you know, we've seen this tragedy here in the last 24 to 30 hours of uh, an earthquake, and now over 5,000 people are dead. And, and people have a hope, they have an expectation that they'll see their loved one again. Why? Because that's wrought into us. God wrote that as part of our nature. It's part of being made in the Imago Dei. So Scripture's authoritative. And so what happens when we die? One second after you die, you're either in heaven or you're in hell. I say one second. It could be five minutes. There's a journey that God takes, and God illustrates it in Luke 16, where Lazarus dies. And of course, at that point in human history, he's brought to Abraham's bosom, which was a metaphor for righteous Sheol, and a good metaphor because Abraham was the father of the faithful, and so he had a true, genuine faith in the Lord. So he went home to be with the Lord. Today, we go immediately into the presence of the Lord. And so to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That was not true of Old Testament saints because they were awaiting the payment that had to be made in time and space on the cross. And so at the ascension, Ephesians 4 affirms that Christ emptied out righteous Sheol or righteous Hades. And now from that moment on, when you die, you go home to be with Jesus and Paul can say, therefore, in First Thessalonians 4, which is, by the way, a great passage that uh, we're actually admonished to comfort one another with when someone dies. So he says, I'll not have you to be ignorant, the King James says. Agnosis uh, means having no knowledge. Gnosis, you alpha it in the front, it means ignorant. I'll not have you to be ignorant about those who are asleep. And God uses the metaphor sleep to describe not the soul, but the body. Because he says, I don't want you to grieve as the rest who have no hope. So we grieve as Christians, especially if you deeply love someone, but you don't have to grieve like unsaved people with no genuine hope. Because he said, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and he raises that up, it's a first-class conditional statement, meaning we do, but why not just say since we believe because he wants them to think through the process. Yes, I believe that. I believe Jesus died and rose again. Okay, therefore, this is true of you. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. What do you mean with him? Because again, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so when you die or those loved ones that you've already lost, so to speak, but they're not really lost because you know where they are, Uh, I'm sorry for your loss. Well, you know, we know where they are. That's just an expression we use in English. They're home with the Lord. And that's why when Paul wrote to the Philippians, you know, he said, you know, on the one hand, he said, "I, I prefer to go home and be with Jesus. And I suppose when the chain rattled on the floor, 
Uh, his spirit was awakened. On the other hand, it'd be good if I stayed with you. He says in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So it's not a loss when you die. Now, there have been groups like Seventh-day Adventists who wrongly teach what we call soul sleep, that when you die, your body, soul, and spirit are in the grave awaiting the resurrection. That's not true. That's false doctrine. And Ellen G. White was a confused woman. She had revelation beyond Scripture, these visions and other things. And I will say, in fairness to Seventh-day Adventists, a lot of Seventh-day Adventists now deny some of the things that she taught, but they still revere her. her. They call her a light leading to a greater light. Look, all you need is the Scripture. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I live on in the flesh, in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. I'm between a rock and a hard place, we'd say in the South. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So you are departing, and where are you? With Christ. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's why Jesus can bring back with him the departed spirits who are in heaven, with him, those who are asleep. What's he going to do when he brings them back? Well, the dead in Christ are going to rise out of the grave first. So those who are in heaven come back. They're reconnected to a new body that comes out of the grave because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This mortality must put on immortality. The perishable must put on the imperishable. And those of us who are alive will be caught up. Harpazo in the Latin Bible, it's the verb that we get our term rapture from. People say the word rapture is not in the Bible. It's in the Latin Bible that was used for a thousand years of church history. I don't care what you call it. There's going to be a snatching away, and it happens when Jesus comes back. So our authority is Holy Scripture. There's no purgatory, by the way. Purgatory is a man-made, created doctrine. You cannot find it in the Bible. Uh, The New Testament teaches The moment you die, you're either in hell or technically Hades, and Hades is going to be dumped into hell someday, into the lake of fire, or you're in heaven with the Lord. Now, there are some books that are written between the two testaments, and in the first edition of the King James Bible, they included them to give some historical light of what happened in that 400-year period when there was no prophet in Israel. And one of those books, never inspired by God, But again, interesting history, it's called 2 Maccabees, and they talk about praying for the dead. And so that's the verse that Roman Catholics use to build the doctrine of purgatory on. It's not a New Testament doctrine. So that's what I would say to you. You might want to listen online. Go to searchthescriptures.org and listen online to a message I did on 1 Thessalonians 4 where I cover a number of passages that teach this. Good question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, we had another caller dictate a question. They'd like to know what you think about Vadi Bakum, Paul Washer, and the church Bible studies that they put out. Well, they're both good men. They both have the gospel. They both preach salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Um, I wouldn't want to get my eschatology from them, my doctrine of last things, because they are amillennial in their teaching. They believe there's no future for Israel. So, for instance, Vadi Bauckham did a series on the Revelation, 
and I heard a, a snippet, like a 15-minute, someone sent it to me, a YouTube summary of statements that he made, and I'm, of course, I'm saying, oh, man, Vadi, you're a great guy, but you're really confused on what God's role is for Israel. So he and Paul Washer believe the church is the new Israel, that we've usurped the place that God has for national Israel, that there's no unique um, meaning to the fact that God has regathered the people, put them back in the land, constituted them as a nation, and that they will have any future. So when they read, say, Matthew 24, they say it's all historical with the exception of Christ coming on the clouds in glory. That all those things that are mentioned in Matthew 24, that everything mentioned in Revelation 4 through 18 is historical. It all happened before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Look, you you got to spiritualize the text. You have to apply a different principle of interpretation, what we call a different hermeneutic, to understanding the prophetic passages of Scripture than you do from the rest of the Bible. So, again, but they're good men. And so, you know, Vadi and Paul have stood strong on the gospel of grace and that if someone is born again, their life changes. And so we live in a day where people say, well, you can receive Christ and your life doesn't have to change. You can still be guaranteed a spot in heaven. Look, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And so I would say they put a lot of emphasis on that in their ministries. I've not seen this church Bible study series where I've had it in my hand. I've spoken in dialogue with Paul Washer before at a conference I went to in New York City. It was by invitation only, and 140 of us were invited. We had some great conversation and talk. I've never spoken face-to-face with Vadi, though I invited him maybe 10 years ago to come preach at our church, but he was too expensive for me. So, uh, And I know he was raising money for other things and his fees that he charges. Um, but lay all that aside. Um, they're good men. I don't agree with their views on uh, eschatology, the time of the end. And I think that puts people to sleep. And it takes away the real and certain hope. When, when people are looking at what we are seeing in the world today, so many people, because they, I'm talking about now Christian people, forget the unsaved. So many Christian people do not have a sure and certain assurance that things are in control because they can't connect the dots that what we're actually seeing today, God said would happen at the end of the age. So these guys are still praying and expecting that God's going to bring some sweeping revival. Look, if God wants to bring a revival, great. And he can certainly do that. But we know there's coming a time where there's not going to be a revival. It's just not going to come. And why? Because things are going to become increasingly worse. And the only quote-unquote revival, and I wouldn't call it a revival, I might call it an awakening, that's going to happen will be during the tribulation period where people are going to be converted like the sands of the seashore from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And Jesus spoke of this. And so, you see, if you think that this stuff is historical in Matthew 24, you really have to spiritualize the text because Jesus described a time in human history like the world has never seen. I mean, that's what he said concerning the tribulation period. Listen to these words. Unless those, let me go back a verse. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. 
Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. If he's talking about something that happened before 70 A.D., like Vaudi and Paul and R.C. and others teach, then my history denies this. World War I and World War II were far more severe and vicious than what happened during the time frame of 70 A.D. And again, God is talking about something from the beginning of the world. Jesus speaks in Revelation 3 of a time of turmoil that is going to come upon the whole world. That's never happened in all of human history. Even World War II didn't encompass the whole world. There was a limited number of nations that were involved. So you really have to spiritualize the text. You say, well, Pastor Carl, how do you know the means of interpretation that you are using to interpret prophecy is correct? Because God put within the Bible how to interpret the Bible, not just the non-prophetic sections, but the actual prophetic sections. And so when Daniel, for instance, is interacting with Jeremiah, Jeremiah speaks of a prophetic, of a prophecy that is going to be fulfilled after 70 years, after the Jewish people are carried to Babylon, that after 70 years, God is going to bring release. So when Daniel's studying that, how does he interpret that, literally? How did God interpret the prophecy for the first coming? Um, How did he fulfill the prophecy for the first coming? Literally, every single prophecy, over 300 for the first coming, were literally fulfilled. So I think this is important. Some people say this is a minor note. It's not, because the church is asleep as to what's happening, and time is running out, but neither should we be wrangling our hands and say, oh, what's going to happen? I know what's going to happen. You say, well, it's, you know, the the world's in a mess, and what's it all coming to? It's coming to Jesus. He's coming back. That's what it's coming to. All right, good question. Let's go to the next. And a reminder, if you have a question on the Bible line, either today or a past one, and didn't get a chance to listen to it live, you can always go to searchthescriptures.org and click on radio programs, and there is a just an archive full of old Bible line questions, including today's. Uh, Jim from Beaufort says, uh, please know I have done some study on this issue and just cannot find much, which is why I value your insight on this matter. I've always been struck by Christ's words to Paul. It is hard for you to kick against the goads in Acts 26, 14, where Paul's recounting his Damascus Road meeting with Jesus. The NASB says, does not include the statement in the original encounter in Acts 9. Does this statement kick against the goads, reflect the Lord's attempted influence on Paul's life prior to conversion? How strong were those goads, and what are they? If so, does the Lord use goads in our lives today, pre- and possibly post-conversion? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, Paul's testimony is found in three places. When we train people on how to write their testimony, uh, we use Paul's recording of his own testimony. It's found in Acts 9, maybe uh, the most dramatic uh, scene that's described there. It's found in Acts 22, and again, he gives it in Acts 26. And when you put the three accounts together, you get a full version. It is true that it's hard for you to kick against the goads is found in, uh, say, the King James in Acts 9, and that's because the King James was using older manuscripts, uh, excuse me, a newer manuscripts, not the oldest of the manuscripts, but manuscripts that were written later on. You see the manuscript process unfolded over the centuries, especially when 
Bible translation came. And so, for instance, when they wrote the, uh, translated the King James Bible, um, they admitted, if you read the preface to the King James Bible that came out in 1611, and maybe some of you bought the anniversary, 400 anniversary edition of the King James Bible that came out in 2011, and and they um, conti- they uh, contained in it the original preface, they admitted that some of the manuscripts that they had were limited, the manuscripts were still being founded, found, found, and this was important because it was the whole process of Bible translation that had been unfolding for at least 100 years, but it really was kicking into high gear, especially with the invention of the printing press. And so people, for the first time, were able to read the Bible in their own tongue. Latin, again, had been the primary translation for a thousand years, and Latin became a dead language, and most people couldn't read it, and so you were you know, confined to the scholar who had to read it for you. And so occasionally in a manuscript, what would happen, a scribe would write, and just like if you opened up my Bible, I might have some notes. In fact, when I preach, I'll say, write this in the margin, or put this verse over that word, or, and people mark up their Bibles to help them to learn it and to find their way around it. Well, people were no different, especially if you had a personal copy of someone's manuscript. And so what might happen is, is I might, in my personal copy, include something that I knew Paul um, uh, had remarked on elsewhere, and I might write it, in, in, in not in the margin, but as part of the body of the text, because when you wrote back in those days, you wrote from end to end. You didn't even put spaces between the words. Your mind had to supply the spaces. And that becomes important to save paper, but it becomes important too in that is that a scribal note or is that part of the original? But the great thing is, is where we have scribal notes, it doesn't change anything, nothing at all, because this statement, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, is found in Acts 26. A goad stick was something that someone who um, dealt with, say, oxen used to train them to work under a yoke. There are actually different kinds of goads. If you want to do a study on it, uh, there were some goads that would be underneath the neck of uh, uh, of the yoke, so to speak, so that if a uh, oxen got too far out of range, he'd feel that prick. But most often they used a goad stick, and they would hit the feet of the oxen just to keep them under control. And after a while, he learned he was trained. I don't like that pain. It was a stick with a little piece of metal. Wouldn't injure him, but it would hurt. And they learned with time to respond to the person leading the oxen. And, of course, Jesus uses this in an illustrative way uh, when Paul recounts here before uh, Festus, and he says, or before Felix, and he says um, that Jesus said it's hard for you to kick against the goats. And so Jesus had a goad stick, so to speak, where he was convicting Paul. What might those goads be? Well, I suppose, among other things, when he was involved at the execution of Stephen and the robes were placed at Saul of Tarsus's feet, which would indicate that he gave leadership to the execution of the very first martyr in the history of the church, uh, when he hears uh, Stephen preach, His heart is no doubt being convicted. When he hears Stephen say, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. 
wow, what what an ability to forgive. The guy is being executed. He's being rocked to death, and he's praying for these people who are involved in the process. He deals with them in truth. He calls them stiff-necked, always resisting the Spirit, and maybe Paul felt that, like maybe I'm resisting the Spirit. So God used different things prior to his salvation to show him that he was wrong such that when he has that dramatic experience and he falls to the ground and he sees a blinding light, uh, he is uh, indeed under deep, deep conviction. Does God do that today? Sure, he can. You know, and God can use different means and different measures because he loves us and he pursues us with an everlasting love and And so Jesus can say in John 6, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. So the initiative does not begin with us. Um, It begins with God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so it's not that we loved him, John will write, but that he loved us and sent his only son. So after Adam sinned, it's not like he fell on his knees with Eve and said, oh, God, we've messed up so bad. We're so sorry. No, what do they do? They, they hide. They run. They're in shame. And so God comes into the garden after Adam and Eve. Why? Because by nature, there's none who seeks God. No, not one Paul will write. And he's quoting, of course, the Old Testament passages there in Romans 3. So God comes in and he says, where are you, Adam? God obviously knows everything. So whenever you hear the voice of God ask a question, it's never to learn, it's only to reveal, and he's revealing to them that there is a problem. So God comes after us, and sometimes God uses goads to get our attention. It might be you have a heart attack, and all of a sudden, you who think you're indestructible, you realize maybe I'm not so indestructible. Maybe I need to give God a consideration. He could do that after you're saved to say, you know, I've really kind of not paid much attention to this temple, this body that God calls a temple of the Holy Spirit. Maybe I need to take better care of it uh, so that I can maximize my service for the Lord. So we call that in the New Testament discipline. Those whom the Lord loves, Hebrews 12, quoting Proverbs 3, he disciplines. If you're without discipline, the writer of the Hebrews will say you're illegitimate. So God can use different things. Sometimes the bottom has to fall out for us to look up. And if that's what it takes, God in his love will pursue uh, those people uh, whom he knows ultimately will respond to him. That doesn't change your free will, but that's God pursuing you because he loves you. And so certainly Paul had some goads. They're not all spelled out, but I think you can infer from what is written especially in light of the Acts 7 passage that no doubt maybe more than anything else, Stephen's testimony. I mean, Stephen, if you, if you want to learn the Old Testament, and you say, you know, the Old Testament is such a big book, and like if I could just get an overview, study Stephen's sermon because he walks you through all the highlights from the beginning until the time Jesus shows up, and you will have a good overview of the whole Bible. And this guy without a Bible in hand, obviously someone who's drenched in the scripture, to quote Spurgeon, his blood ran bibline, wherever you poked him, the Bible came out. 
he's able to recount the whole of Scripture and the whole plan, starting in Genesis all the way through Malachi, and proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And Paul had to have been astounded because Paul was a guy who studied under Gamaliel, the great rabbi, and Gamaliel was an impressive teacher and leader, and yet here is Stephen. And, you know, that's one of the things that astonished some of the Jewish leaders. These men are untaught. They didn't come to any of our approved yeshivas, so to speak, but they speak as having been with Christ. Why? Because not only did they learn under the Master, but they were indwelt by the Spirit, and they spoke with a power and authority that no human explanation could could come up with an answer. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Peter would like to know, are there still prophets today, or did the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ basically put an end to prophets? Well, it's a good question. Um, in the book of Ephesians, the Bible speaks, let me just turn there for a second, of different gifts in the church. So it's important when you think and hear the word prophet, prophetes, that you make a distinction in your mind between the gift of prophecy and the office of prophet. In Ephesians 4, contextually, he's talking about gifts. For instance, it says in Ephesians 4 and verse 7, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So one of the descriptions, like in 1 Corinthians 12, of a spiritual gift, which if you're listening to me this morning, and you've been born again, you have what's called a grace gift. The word gift, charis, is related to the word for grace. And so they dovetail with each other. These are grace gifts. You don't earn them. You don't deserve them. God doesn't say, well, that guy's got such a great intellect. I'll give him this gift or that. No, it has nothing to do with you. It is according to God's sovereign choice as he distributes the gifts. And so he gives gifts to men. He ascends on high, he gives gifts to men. And he gave some, a few verses later, as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. For what reason? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So as you grow in Christ, you discover what your spiritual gift is. And if you want some help in that, I offer a course at searchthescriptures.org on spiritual gifts. I did my doctoral dissertation. It was entitled The um, Discovery and the Implementation of a Spiritual Gift-Based Ministry for the Local Church. And I took the appendix of that dissertation and made that into a course. I wanted something that I could use. You know, doctoral dissertations just tend to sit on a shelf. And I wanted something I could use, and I've refined it and tweaked it and it's available online at searchthescriptures.org. You can take the course through the Institute of Biblical Studies. You can also even take a spiritual gifts inventory. It's 128 questions, and you can answer those questions. And you should answer them not as you would like them to be, but what you know to be true. And if you want maybe someone else who really knows you well spiritually, get them to take it for you, for them to answer the questions as if they were you. And you might get an initial sense of what your gift might be. Sometimes people take that inventory and they say, well, I kind of scored, you know, medium, but really not outstanding on anyone. That usually indicates that you are a babe in Christ and haven't grown much. When you hold a newborn baby 
in terms of physical skills, intellectual skills, you don't know until they grow. Are they going to be a mighty, um, you know, Einstein of sorts? Are they going to have athletic skills, mechanical skills? You don't know until they grow. And as they grow, their areas of giftedness begin to manifest themselves. The same is true spiritually. But if we remain babes in Christ, then we might not distinguish ourselves until we start growing. And this is why we offer the discovery class online. It's called Basic Discipleship. And the online course, 21 now of the 45 weeks, are up online with all the note-taking outlines. Why? We're trying to help people to grow. So as you read the New Testament, you discover there's the gift of prophecy. That's still given today. And there's the office of prophet. That's not around today because someone who served in the office of prophet would be someone who foretold, they predictively gave information about something that God was going to do. Now, they could not only foretell, they could then foretell what God had revealed. And they would often do that. But if you were a true prophet of God, then there would be some evidences of it. And so, for instance, I'm going back to Deuteronomy 18, and there Moses wrote, but the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may in your heart say, well, how will we know the, the word which the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord or in in Yahweh's name, if the thing does not come about or come true, that the thing which the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of him. So in other words, I could say I'm a prophet of God, and I want to tell you what's going to happen 100 years from now. You might say, well, I'm not going to be around in 100 years. How am I going to know if it's true? Well, for me to be authenticated as a prophet of God, I would have to tell a short-term prophecy that would authenticate that I spoke from Yahweh. Well, there are no prophets today. Why? Because they're not needed. Why? Because the canon of Scripture is closed. Is there the gift of prophecy, the gift of sometimes it's called preaching or foretelling? Yes. And like a prophet, this person would speak with authority and they will call people to action, call people to a change of life based on the scripture itself. So there is that distinction. In the New Testament, there were people with the gift of prophecy. And again, in some respect, they were given direct revelation. Why? Because the Bible was not completed yet. And so Paul said the the spirit of a prophet is to yield to two or three people. In other words, make sure that this guy is not a fraud or a fake or a phony. But once the canon of Scripture was closed, that dimension of prophecy stopped. There was no new revelation. So when someone comes to you and says, I have a prophetic word for you from the Lord, that's someone with a big ego and someone who's just trying to impress you or impress themselves, and they're liars. That's what they are. They're liars. Don't you believe them? What God has today is the 66 books in the canon. The word canon is from a Latin word. It means a measuring rod or a measuring stick. And so now any belief you have has to be put up against 
the plumb line, the measuring stick, the canon of Scripture to know whether it's true or not. You can't add or subtract to the Scripture. So God's not giving new revelation. What he might do through someone with the gift of prophecy is he'll burden them with a text of Scripture, and then that person will preach that text of Scripture, but they're not giving new revelation. But these people who go around and say, I've got a word of prophecy for you. They're liars. Don't believe them. Good question. Let's go to the next one. Amelia from Beaufort was wondering why the Jewish people or anyone who is awaiting the Messiah the first time were waiting for a great military leader or king. She writes, I know there are so many passages about him coming to rule and reign in the Old Testament that point to the second coming. But what did the people and priests in those days think about passages like Isaiah 53 and Genesis 3 that clearly tell he would be put to death for us? Did they think these passages were about someone else or that they had already happened? I have a hard time understanding why they didn't know Jesus would come once to be crushed and then again to reign unless I'm just missing something. But from what I gather, the Jewish people are still waiting for a conquering king since they obviously didn't believe Jesus was the one. Would you clear this up, please? Well, it's a, it's a good question. And sometimes in a singular passage of Scripture, the whole prophetic schedule of what the Messiah will accomplish will be written off. In fact, we just kind of covered this a little bit this past Sunday. I'm doing a series, if you're new here to WAGP, it's called God's Prophetic Schedule. And if you go to the homepage of Community Bible Church, on the homepage there's a green box that says God's Prophetic Schedule. And if you click on that, all of the messages we've done to date will show up. And it would be helpful to go chronologically. I think we have over 20 messages already. Um, And, of course, in Isaiah 9, which we covered last Sunday, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. That's the incarnation. And, of course, this child's name is going to be called Mighty God. So the Bible prophesies that God is going to become a man. And he also says, and the government will rest on his shoulders. That hasn't happened yet. That's a future dimension to what the Messiah is going to accomplish. Uh, When Jesus in Nazareth on one occasion, he's in Nazareth, uh, people had heard about the miracles he was doing. And so when he goes in the synagogue, they want him to preach. And so they handed him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And uh, that scroll that they hand him on that day, no doubt from the providence of God, was Isaiah 61. And there it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stops right there in the middle of a verse. Uh, Sometimes as pastors, we call it a 2,000-year-old comma because that's what he did in his first coming. So when you read Luke's account in Luke 4, 16 and 19, and we go to this place where after he had preached, we go to the Mount of Precipice. And there are some places when you go to an Israel You say, well, this is a class A spot, meaning this happened here. What we're reading happened right here could happen in no other place. There's a class B spot. You know, it happened somewhere in and around here. We don't know if it was 200 yards over there or maybe across that hill, but in and around here, class C spot, we're just kind of guessing. This is a class A spot, the Mount of Precipice. 
this was the only place in all of Nazareth where they could have thrown him over the cliff. And so when he initially starts preaching in Isaiah 60, from Isaiah 61, the people of the Bible says, marvel, thorazo, they're, they're blown away, we might say in modern English. They're blown away at his words. Wow, listen to him. But then when he gets personal and he speaks to the fact that they're self-righteous, they get mad and they walk about a mile from the synagogue to the breast of this hill and they're ready to throw him off, but power emanates from him and he walks right through them. What was the problem? When he pointed out sin, people who don't think they need a savior will take offense or people who love sin and therefore want to redefine sin. And that's more and more of the age that we live in. People want to redefine sin. Abortion is not wrong. It's just removing a piece of fetal tissue. It's not murder. Drunkenness is not wrong. It might be wrong if I go out and hurt someone, but as long as I'm not hurting anyone, there's nothing wrong with me getting high. Um, Premarital sex is not wrong, just as long as we love each other and it's consensual. So you see, sin is redefined. And so self-righteous people either redefine the meaning of sin or they rationalize sin, and a rationalization is nothing more than a rational lie. And that's what Jesus dealt with when he came. He came to a nation that had become self-righteous, and therefore they gravitated to a Messiah who would want to rule and reign. And that's one picture of Messiah where he rules the nations of the world with a rod of iron. That hasn't happened yet. The governments didn't rest on his shoulders when he came the first time. Because if you read Isaiah carefully, there are two pictures, that of a suffering servant and that of a sovereign king. So how did they interpret Isaiah 53? Well, a lot of ignored it, but as time went on, there was a famous um, rabbi in the 11th century, and he basically postulated that Isaiah 53 is not speaking of a person but of a nation. But when you read Isaiah 53, it can't refer to that. And certainly the Jewish apostles didn't understand it that way when they quote it, and the Spirit of God gives us divine reference. But even if you didn't have their New Testament commentary, when you read Isaiah carefully, you would say that um, what Rabbi Rashni came up with was just uh, incorrect. So, uh, yeah, there were some issues that drove their thinking, but that is going to change. And so all Jews are not in unbelief. There is a movement that's really remarkable that is even happening in Israel today uh, that is encompassing Jewish people where there's these small Messianic congregations all across the nation. And then I was speaking to one brother, and he uh, pastors a church called Christ Church, and he said, Pastor Carl, you can't believe how many Jewish people are coming here on Sunday morning. They're not converted yet but they're listening, they're thinking. And I believe God is preparing them for after the rapture of the church, we know these 144,000 Jews are going to preach the gospel. And God is going to work in a new, fresh way with the nation as we studied this past Sunday. And I think this question came in prior to that from the prophet Zechariah. The spirit of grace will be poured out on the Jewish people and they will look on him whom they have pierced. That's going to happen during the tribulation, not at the time of the second coming, but prior to it. They're going to understand that the one they rejected 
was indeed the Messiah. But again, self-righteousness, as much as anything, drove the ship. And that's why Jesus said to the self-righteous leaders who many of the people followed, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to save, we could put in air quotes, the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. Well, if you think you're righteous, you don't need a savior. If you think you're well, you don't need a doctor when in reality you may be sick. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. So Peter wanted to know whether there were still prophets, but Della from Albany, Georgia, wants to know, are there apostles in our world today? Okay, it's a good question, and it's uh, come up through a a movement that's not really new. It's just um, packaged under a different name, uh, the New Apostolic Movement in sometimes the Reformed Apostolic Movement, so under a couple titles. It comes from a false prophet by the name of William Bradham, who um, had a movement called the Latter Rains Movement in the 1960s. And basically what they are arguing is for the restoration, not just of the office of prophet, but also for the office of apostle. And they claim that they speak with the same authority an apostle spoke with. In fact, they speak with such authority that what they say should never be questioned. That's more cultish than it is biblical. It's so contrary to the picture you find in Scripture, like the Bereans who search the Scriptures. That's the title of my radio ministry. Jesus said, search the Scriptures because they speak of me. But the Bereans search the Scriptures, Acts 17, to see if what Paul was saying was actually found in the Scripture. And many of them concluded, this is what the scriptures say. Jesus is indeed the Lord that we've been waiting for. And so when they say, you know, when we speak as apostles of this new movement, you shouldn't question what we say. That That's, again, very cultish and very contrary to what scripture says. Paul assumed that people could read the scripture and understand for themselves. And so in Galatians chapter 1, let me just flip over there for a second. Galatians is dealing with some uh, false teachers who who came into the church, and Paul makes a very pointed statement here. Um, he says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I again say now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, he is to be accursed. And so he's dealing with some false teachers who came into the Galatian church, and what they were teaching had implications on sanctification. So Paul takes them back to how they were justified. And so he says that um, uh, some of these people were being influenced. They weren't denying what Jesus did, but they were being influenced in the application of the sanctification process for a different gospel, which is really not another, but there are some who are disturbing you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. So what is he saying all that? He's saying you can be thinking people. So what does he do? He goes back to the scriptures. He he reminds them of what God had revealed, quotes the Old Testament, shows that you're justified by grace alone through faith alone, and so you are sanctified through that same process. So there are no apostles today. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because 
God gave some tests, some litmus tests that I've often been asked about on the Bible line as to how to know who was a true apostle. Well, number one, you had to have been selected by the risen Lord. And by the way, much like with this word prophet, the word apostle can speak of a gift and it can speak of the office. And so there is a distinction that's made in the New Testament. And so in Ephesians 4, when he said he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastor teachers, contextually, he's dealing there with spiritual gifts. And so there's the gift of apostle. The word apostolos means a sent one, but it's distinctly different from the office of apostle. And so um, the office is referred to in a very much of a different vein in a different light. And so the office is described in Acts chapter 1. Remember, Judas had died, and they needed a replacement to fill Judas's shoes. And who, who, who was a potential choice? Uh, and they needed the Lord's direction because he's obviously ascended to heaven, and they knew that this person needed to be selected by God himself. So how would they you know, discern like who this person should be. Well, they are reminded in Scripture that God wrote about this before it happened. And so it became, um, well, let me just turn there to Acts chapter 1 for just a second. Uh, It says, therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all men, show which one of these two should be chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. So again, he's describing here what he has just called a few verses before I read, in office. And so they need someone to fill the office. And a prerequisite was that this person had seen the Lord. Um, They had hung out with him. And if they were chosen by the Lord, and in this case through the lot driven because Jesus was in heaven, and if he had been chosen by the Lord, he also had to have seen the risen Lord. That's why Paul says, have I not seen the risen Christ? In 1 Corinthians 9, yes, he did. He saw the risen, resurrected Lord. And if that were true, then 2 Corinthians twelve twelve would be true. You would do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only a true apostle could do. If everyone could do them, then Paul's argument as to why he was a true apostle and these others who'd come in and call themselves apostles were not is a meaningless argument. So there are no apostles today in terms of the office. There are sent ones, and we usually don't translate it with the Greek word apostolos so as not to confuse. But Epaphroditus, for instance, is called an apostle, not in the office, but with the gift Anyway, it's a good question. Thanks for being with us today on The Bible Line. I hope you have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ.